Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. All right, so uh, next up we have the Beatles' next single, um, their December, their Christmas 1965 single. They used to refer to the singles around that time of year as their Christmas singles, even though they weren't Christmas music usually. And this is We Can Work It Out, Day Tripper. And there's this one's interesting for a number of reasons. It is one of the few true collaborative left efforts uh, after their earliest days it went, uh, between uh, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And in fact, it might be their only true, truly collaborative single in terms of songwriting. It is also notable for being what some people consider the first ever double A side. And this is something that is like probably lost on a lot of people today when, you know, everything's digital and you don't need to worry about so filling no B side? No, the idea being that there is a B side, but no one could but, tell which was the B side, right? Yeah, it was two good songs. Yeah, exactly. So like... yeah. Prior to prior to this song, generally speaking, the practice in pop rock was to have the song that people thought was a hit and a song that was so bad that they didn't want to put it on an album. That was generally the process. And this may not have been the first one, but certainly Beatles historians have said it's the first one. I don't know if it's true, but both of these songs became radio staples, which is not true of any of their previous singles. Every other previous single, they... The A side, the single became a radio staple and a hit, and the B side is mostly forgotten to history and like people like me. And it's because they basically they had these two songs that were they couldn't decide, you know, which one was the better one, and so they decided to do something weird and different, which is a thing that they you know were <laughs> were known for doing by this point. And so both of them were they thought both of them might chart as hits, and that's what happened. So the first track... Can I ask you a question? Yeah, absolutely. Did this become a more common thing after the Beatles did this and they saw success? Like, were there copycat acts that started doing like a double A side? I don't know how many other acts did it. The Beatles themselves did it a bunch of times during the um, 60s. Okay. But I don't know how often it would continue to be done. I think in general, the thinking was, why do it when you can sell like when you can put the strong songs on separate records and sell more yeah. records, but the Beatles but guess, but were making so much money that like they didn't care. Yeah. But I, but I also guess how much longer, like when did 45 sales start to drop off? Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I remember still seeing, I remember seeing CD singles in the nineties at in stores and being like, well, this is weird here. You, you have had way disc. more money than I did. Cause I hung out in fucking used record stores only. And there were no singles there. <laughs> fancy new like, cd i mean i i was in used record stores i wasn't going to well maybe the odd new one um i guess hmv the odd time but like i always thought I, it was like, weird I, I remember single single cds being like an absolute rarity outside of the radio station and they're really weird too because here yeah. you have 80 minutes of music or 78 minutes of music and you've decided to put like you know seven minutes on it like why did you well, do i mean this? like i listen to a lot of punk rock so like 80 minutes of music is pretty generous yeah. 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, but the format yeah. can hold 78, right? Or whatever. All right, so I'm going to just play the intro of uh, We Can Work It Out. Try to see it my way Do I have to keep on talking Till 
So you probably heard that song. It's one of their more famous songs. It is a is a song that Paul McCartney wrote, but that John Lennon helped finish. Like I said, this was a collaborative song. On it, John Lennon plays the harmonium, which was a French is a French pump organ, which is one of the first uses by the Beatles of a non-rock instrument uh, for a lead melody, and might be a true of like honestly, aside from the twelve-string guitar, which they'd brought in the year before. One of the earliest examples of this on a, on, well, pop song, I guess. If it's pop song, that happened a fair amount with the, the sort of big uh, productions in the States and Motown and, and Brill Building. But for a band, it was a fairly rare thing. And the harmonium, though it is French, would become a somewhat common instrument in psychedelia. The song is relatively straightforward uh, compared to a lot of their music time. <laughs> However, the bridge is in a sort of like polka slash waltz time. Apparently that's credited George Harrison, who basically doesn't do anything on this uh, song except for play tambourine, but he, he apparently rearranged the bridge to the version that you hear on the single. And of course, as usual, was given zero credit for it because that's what they did. The harmonium drones, notably, which is the beginning of the Beatles starting to play around with drones that have become a much more common thing, even, even on this, this album, but especially on future albums. And so that was the, the A-side, or one of the A-sides. So there's a fairly distinct stylistic difference between these two songs. Uh, one is a ballad dominated by a harmonium and one of them is a more riff driven song very much like i feel fine which had been their lead single the previous december if i'm not mistaken this is a lennon song that mccartney helped finish this time and it's also notable that this song is relatively early evidence that the beatles were starting to move on from love songs much like a few of the songs we talked about with the the last two records this song is well, no one's really sure what it's about. Some people say it's about weekend hippies, people who were like, you know, I guess you would call the, the, the modern term would be weekend warriors, people who like lived normal lives during the week and then tried to pretend they didn't live those normal lives on the weekends. Another uh, interpretation has it that it's about weekend drug users. But anyway, it, it, whatever it's about, it is, it is uh, not directly about a relationship, unlike we can work it out. The the single was released on the same day as River Soul, and in the in the UK that meant it was a separate, completely separate record. You had to buy both. The songs were not put on Rubber Soul, but in the US, an American version of this album would have had both of them, as we talked about in the past. But this is very much their strongest single to date, I think. Song wise, obviously, it had two songs that became hits. It's also a fairly strong indication of the differences in songwriting, both in terms of like the the fact that one's basically a ballad and one's an upbeat rock song, but also in the uh, differences between McCartney and Lennon as songwriters. And it is just notable, I think, in, in many ways for that. But it's not as notable as the album that came out the same day, which is Rubber Soul, which is in many ways the last early Beatles album and the first later Beatles album, even though I sort of said Beatles for Sale, sort of it, their first modern one. An album that I think it's safe to say was an absolute landmark, much like some of their earlier music in the history of pop rock, and arguably the best or second best 
album in that genre that has ever been released to date. I'm going to try to explain why. In my book, it's the first time I think I really break down every single song in great detail um, in terms of the credits, though I might have done that before, just because there's a lot more going on this time. So to summarize, one reason it's the last of the early Beatles albums, and this is like a technical thing and really doesn't matter to most people, is it's the last album Norman Smith, who had been their engineer for their entire career so far, had worked on with them. He was he was elevated a producer by their label, and he actually would become the producer of Pink Floyd very shortly um, before Pink Floyd took over the production job and fired him. Um, he would also go on to having, uh, he had a, a one-hit wonder un, under a different name as well. But the reason that's important is because after this album, the Beatles would be paired with a, a team of engineers, not just one guy. And those engineers, along with the Beatles, would start doing really weird things, even weirder than it had already been done. Uh, that would help you know expand the bounds of um, pop rock music. Another sort of incidental thing is it's the last Beatles album with a conventional cover, conventional normal cover art until uh, Let It Be, which would come out five years later or four and a half. I guess. Question? Yes. What do you mean by conventional cover? Because that doesn't sure. Kind of when you when you said that, it just kind of went. What do you mean? Because I thought like looking at this from modern eyes. Yeah. All the Beatles album covers I remember seeing never struck me as weird or different or anything. They just kind of struck me as an album cover, like nothing, nothing remarkably yeah. weird or different. Or it was, just, you know. So the first, all the all the covers so far had been the the band pictures of the band. I'm actually okay. going to uh, pull up like headshot kind of things. Yeah. So so please please me is just is that famous picture of them leaning over like the side of a balcony. Yeah. yeah, the railing uh, with the Beatles is just is just their heads, just four of their heads on a black background. A Hard Day's Night is the four of them making different faces about five times. So there's like a grid of like four by five. Yeah. And it's their uh, four heads repeated five times. And then Beatles for sale. They're just standing around in coats outside. It was released in the winter and they look like they're cold. And then. Um, Rubber Soul is them with slightly longer hair with a psychedelic looking rubber soul, but they're standing in front of a tree, basically. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so those were the first covers. After that, Revolver would be a collage. Then there's the famous giant piece of art that was Sgt. Pepper. Then, of course, uh, Magical Mystery Tour is like, is, is again, so, sort of psychedelic looking. And then um, the White Album is famous for, you know, having nothing on it, basically. And then Abbey Road, they're crossing the street. But prior to Revolver, it was always these variations of their headshots, basically. Okay. Okay. So that's all I mean. It's also the first Beatles album you know, since their debut with the goal of releasing all the material together. That actually turned out to not be true. They had to take a help outtake, which I mentioned before. However, this was the sort of the last time I mean, this is also the last record, well, second last record they made before they stopped touring, essentially. So it was also one of the last times they just sat down to make an album rather than just spending all their time making albums, which is what they would soon be doing. It is also the first album to feature more than just a little in the way of non-rock instruments. In the past, all the non-rock instruments they played basically had been percussion instruments. And now, starting with that harmonium on We Can Work It Out, it would be a bunch of other things. 
But most importantly, it is the last Beatles album to feature only songs that could be labeled as pop or rock in a traditional sense, because they'd been genre hopping more than most people by this point. But even their hops into folk or country music had been informed by rock music and pop music. They're all sort of in the same space. That's true of this record, too. And this is the last time, basically. So this isn't the midpoint of the decade, of course. This is uh, December 1965. But it really could be said that this is the point at which the end of the first half of the 60s in a musical sense comes to a close. Rubber Soul contains more ideas, especially non-rock and roll ideas, than any other Beatles album up to date, but still sort of sounds like the Beatles of this era. And there's not like a giant break with the past like there would start to be. People were still making music in a sense like folk rock had existed for a couple of years and that was a big step into a new world, but it still sounded like pop rock music. And the thing we think about, a lot of us think about when we think about the 60s, which is like the summer of love and like psychedelic music, which is heavily influenced by Indian music and stuff like this hadn't happened yet. And like the big music festivals, uh, aside from the the famous um, jazz and folk one in Newport, hadn't really started yet. All this, you know, there there wasn't, it was still, music was still recognizable as the stuff that had existed earlier in the decade. There hadn't been a big break yet. But this, so this is the last of these more traditional Beatles albums. So the first track is a Drive My Car, a uh, goofy sort of jokey song that is immaculately arranged and produced. So you don't really realize how uh, silly it is. Uh, the lyrics are quite dumb or, or goofy, I guess. It's certainly a step forward in McCartney in terms of writing more fun songs, I guess. He would become quite satirical later, a combination of uh, writing satires, parodies, and homages, where you can't always tell whether it's a tribute, a heartfelt tribute, or like a biting satire. This would become a staple of, of his songwriting later, but he hadn't really done it yet. But this, this is not yet there. This is more just, you know, it's about a woman who thinks she's a movie star. And uh, insisting that her uh, her boyfriend or lover drive her around and treat her like a movie star, even though she only wants him for sex, um, it is relatively, you know, sophisticated for the Beatles and pop music of the time. But it's still a long way for uh, certainly in the in terms of the types of parodies McCartney would get into. It's a long way from that, but it's still like a, a step forward. It is the first example I know of of George Harrison playing bass on a Beatles song, which is not super important. It's also another incident of uh, Paul McCartney playing uh, lead guitar, which would become more notable as as their career went on. And uh, noticeably, Paul McCartney has a particularly gritty guitar style, which, of course, lead guitar style, which conflicts with his the whole idea of him writing, you know, silly little love songs and being the songs the band's balladeer. Uh, so it's I've always found that weird. But then the big deal. The really big deal, the really shocking big deal, is this song. That is the first ever sitar on a Western 
uh, musical recording that I'm aware I did of. not know that. <clears throat> like, I, I knew they um, were one of the first bands to really bring the sitar in, but I didn't realize it was on Nor- Norwegian wood. Yeah. Neat. Um, Good song. It is a, again, a, a bit of a joke song. Um, however, <laughs> the joke is uh, something that uh, John Lennon probably didn't want his wife to know about, despite writing a song about it. So the drones of Indian classical music had made their way into popular music already, particularly notably in the King song, See My Friends, which was released in July 1965. However, that song was played on rock band instruments. It's just they had used a little bit of drone, and I think they'd fooled around with their guitar tuning. So this is an actual sitar, an Indian instrument, on a folk song. Now, it was Harrison's first try at it. He was still not quite as adept as he would be later. But it's the sitar more than any other Indian instrument and Indian music really more than any other source of music that would come to dominate the music of psychedelia, particularly in the UK, going, you know, beginning in, in 66, so a little bit later than this. But this is, the, this is sort of the song that like broke open that, uh, along with that King song. When, more often than not, when psychedelic pop and rock bone uh, rock bands sought extra rock influences. They would seek out Indian music influences, sometimes using Indian instruments, but usually more often, usually tuning and altering their instruments to sound like Indian instruments. And and this, the Beatles sound of the mid '60s, but this song in particular had a lot uh, to do with that. There's a subgenre they sort of call it ragga rock. This is not really ragga rock because it's you know a folk song, but it's still you know, this, this land, uh, yet another instance where they were doing something that no one else had done. So apparently the lyrics are about John Lennon's affair, cheating on his wife, but he, he had to like, you know, sort of like hide it somehow. This is apparently a real story <laughs> and it wasn't with his wife uh, who, um, not Yoko Ono. This is the pre Yoko Ono wife. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Uh, the next track is a McCartney track. It's called You Won't See Me. It's about relationship trouble. When I call you up, your lines engaged. I have had the real, real relationship trouble, I think, with his girlfriend at the time. And it so that it marks a, a point at which Paul McCartney had started writing confessional songs along with John Lennon. However, of course, the song is a Motown tribute rather than a folk song. So the pairing of a Motown so- uh, song with a, a confessional lyric is, again, one of these many, many fusions of different styles that the Beatles were doing all the time. It's also notable for having a droning organ note played by their assistant, their personal assistant, Mal Evans, through much of the song, which was, again, it was very, very common in Indian music, but it was really quite uncommon in popular Western music. There was a lot of droning uh, music being made in like, you know, this is at the time, the Dream Syndicate in New York City, the Theater of Eternal Music, the Dream Syndicate, both names, um, Lamonte Young, John Cale, a bunch of other people were making this kind of music in New York City, but they were live performances. They were not being recorded. No one really knew about it. So the the fact that they, the Beatles were incorporating drone into like these, like, you know, three and a half minute songs was notable. Also, this is the longest, you won't see me as the longest Beatles song up to date at three minutes and 24 seconds, which is weird that it's, you know, they had not, they had not been recording very long songs up until this point. That would of course change. 
Um, and if anyone cares, the, the Rolling Stones, that's one area in which the Rolling Stones had gotten more uh, quote unquote innovative than they had, they had, I believe they were in the process of releasing a song that was, you know, 12 minutes long or something. And Bob Dylan had also put out a really, really long song that summer. Uh, not that any of that matters. So the next track, the lyrics have dated really poorly. It's it's safe to say that whatever John Lennon knew of existential philosophy in 1965 wasn't very much. However, Nowhere Man is a bit of a landmark anyway, in that it is the first time that the Beatles were writing about something that had nothing to do with love or relationships. In my book, I jokingly call it the acquisition of commercial goods and services, but buying shit, driving cars, that kind of thing. He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. It is an attempt to write a philosophical song. I don't really know what it means. However... There's, you know, baby steps, I guess, yeah. is a good way of putting it. It is, is notable that it opens with an acapella opening, just the vocals, and there is this a very prominent and loud guitar line, a little too much influenced by the birds, maybe. Still, an attempt at writing a song that had nothing to do with things that pop songs were about. Of course, this is, is as much as John Lennon was never the lyricist of Bob Dylan. This is the influence of Bob Dylan rearing its head again in a far less poetic way but it is uh, an attempt anyway and it's catchy and of course it has as usual weird neat little beatles musical tricks like the acapella ending another clumsy attempt at meeting is george harrison's think for yourself which was another attempt at writing a non-love song However, it's also musically interesting. It contains two bass parts, both of which were played by McCartney. And the more noticeable one is a fuzz bass part, which is, as far as I know, the first time that a bass guitar had been paired up with a distortion effect, which was distortion was quite early on. You know, Satisfaction was like had been released this year. And Satisfaction, I think, is is considered one of the first ever uses of distortion, like deliberate distortion on a guitar riff. And so this was not long after that. And this is like the fuzz bass would become a trend for a while. Yeah, it was in June that Satisfaction came out, actually. And um, yeah, so that's that makes it interesting. And also it's worth noting that the chord progression is pretty damn wacky, even if the lyrics are clumsy. Pollock, uh, Alan Pollock, the musicologist who I, I rely on a lot for this book, notes that like, it, it kind of tricks your ear and just trying to like, you can't really figure out what key it's in because it's moving around all the time. And uh, so growing sophistication on Harrison's part in terms of comp- composition, though the lyrics, you know, again, baby steps in terms of attempts at greater lyrical meaning. The next track is the word, which is the first Beatles love song about the grand concept of like hippie love, as opposed to like interpersonal love. And I guess it's sort of pre, presages the hippiness it's it's you know not again lyrically i think in hindsight it it looks kind of silly and naive but they were trying to write different song different things about different songs however they flattened the sound of the piano to give it a really really different sound in the song which is kind of neat it's also the second beatles song to feature a harmonium 
this time played by George Martin, so it's a little more accomplished. If you listen to the stereo version, it's actually quite noticeably different than the mono version. They'd started to do some really wacky shit in these recordings, though at this point, it's still quite subtle. So the next track is one of the more famous tracks from this record, Michelle, which has some silly lyrics, including some in French. first time the Beatles had ever finger-picked their guitars, Paul McCartney doing it in this case, rather than playing with a pick. So the folk influence showing up there. Now, you know, a little while ago, we, we talked about John Lennon claiming Ticket to Ride was the birth of heavy metal and how that was a really silly thing to say. Well, Paul McCartney, not to be outdone, has also claimed that this was the first time that any rock and roll guitarist had ever finger-picked. I think that's very likely bullshit. Don't let anyone tell you that they were humble. <laughs> um, you know, rock and roll comes from country music. And uh, it's hard to believe that I, I, as much as finger picks are, are sometimes used in country music too, it's hard to believe that anyone could honestly suggest that a, a genre that partly emerged from a, a genre where there was a lot of finger picking would, you know, I was the first person to finger pick on a rock recording. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. But it's actually, it's quite a neat arrangement, uh, certainly unique for them. And I think that's one of the reasons why, aside from the, the fact that people like singing uh, silly French words, I think one of the reasons the song has become so famous is because of the, uh, the neat arrangement and the fact that the guitar solo, it's, it's all low notes. So it actually sounds like a bass solo, even though it was not a bass solo. So we now get to a very important point in Beatles history, which is the lyrical debut of Ringo Starr. The other day I saw you as I walked along the road But when I saw him with you I couldn't feel my future fold It's so easy for a girl like you to lie Tell me why What goes on in your heart uh, <laughs> it's what's go What Goes On, a song that John Lennon wrote but Ringo Starr co-wrote some of the lyrics for the final version. It is the most traditional song on the album and the most country. It was written years earlier by John Lennon, and I guess it was just sort of like, you know, brought up so that Ringo Starr could have a, another one of his vocal uh, features. And it's pretty aggressively out of step with the rest of the record. Uh, George Harrison's guitar playing on it is very Carl Perkins, which is something he was doing a couple years earlier. However, the bass and rhythm parts are wacky. And I'd strongly suggest pulling it up and checking that out because they're, they're sort of like aggressively strange, especially for a traditional like country rock song or country-ish country rock and roll song. You can also, there's also a, a wacky little jam on anthology that it, it contributed to. Uh, this was the last country number the Beatles ever wrote for Ringer Star. Things would change. They would stop doing these uh these sort of you know traditional country songs for him and so when i say rubber soul was the last of the early beatles albums it's certainly 
because it contains songs like this, whereas that would not be a thing anymore. The next track, Girl, is a is basically a complete uh, curveball from what goes on. So I think we get a little, we have these weird ideas of what Eastern music means. This song has been described as Eastern, but it is, it's influenced by Greek music. So that's not particularly Greek East. is East of England. That's true. That's true. So, yeah. Um, so, and I love her, for example, was a, was, has a little bit of a like Mediterranean feel, but this is the first time that Beatle had written a song that sounded uh, yeah, like moves particularly away from like, you know, British musical tradition. They had, of course, added instruments and things that, you know, on other songs on this record, Indian uh, sounds and, 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 you know, there was some Latin percussion on things and stuff. But like, this is actually heavily influenced by Greek music. Also, the vocals are recorded in such a way that sounds, you know, a little what we now think of as druggy but were like sort of laconic sounding and very, very different from the sort of up-tempo high energy sound that the Beatles had been employing before. I'm certainly thinking it's one of the more noble tracks on the record because of its like heavy, heavy, you know, influence of, of this other genre, but also the weird vocal effect. I'm looking through you as another confessional McCartney song on the record. Again, indicating his growing lyrical ability. I'm looking through. It's also uh, one of the more fun and dynamic recordings they'd made. There are some breaks, really more noticeable than in almost anything they'd ever recorded before. So much more like where they were getting better and better at these elaborate arrangements. It also features the keyboard debut of Ringo Starr, which is whatever, but just a thing, a piece of trivia. And it is one of the early signs of Paul McCartney's perfectionist streak as i don't believe george harrison played on the recording and that means that paul mccartney was playing george harrison's parts and that would of course become a common uh thing that uh you know would start to create some fairly serious problems uh, later on for both john lennon and george harrison So that was not a harpsichord. It was a no. piano made to sound like a harpsichord. This song is obvi- uh, arguably the second standard written by a Beatle. But unlike yesterday, there is some debate about who is responsible for it. It is the edited version of a much longer poem that John Lennon had written when he was encouraged by a critic to write uh, songs and poetry about his childhood. The debate is about the music. Uh, Paul McCartney has claimed that he wrote the music and John Lennon has claimed he wrote the music as well with a little bit of help from Paul McCartney. This is a fairly normal thing. 
for the Beatles to disagree. However, I think George Martin probably deserves a co-writing credit because he basically completely originated that bridge. And that bridge, of course, features a piano that he has played and sped up to sound like a harpsichord. It's the second time that George Martin has used this trick, but arguably far more effectively and giving the bridge essentially a Baroque feel. And you could say this is one of the first ever Baroque pop songs, if not the first ever Baroque pop song, which of course became a big thing much later. It's, it's of course, one of the most famous songs on this record, but for me, I, I find that, that that solo really stands out compared to a lot of their earlier music in, in how aggressively not rock music it is, even though it is actually a piano being played. You know, there's a very deliberate attempt to sound like another genre from hundreds of years earlier, which is, I find very interesting. But the Beatles being the Beatles uh, and liking to sequence their albums in very strange ways, the next song is an outtake from the previous album, Help. It's called Wait. It was recorded during Help. However, overdubs were added and it also was added in to pad the album up to 35 minutes, which was the standard length of the Beatles album at the time. It sounds noticeably less progressive and, and less interesting than basically all the other songs on the album, except for maybe what goes on. But even what goes on has those, fun, those weird, strange rhythm uh, and bass parts. It is arguably the weakest thing here in some ways, except for the fact that it once again has a volume pedal effect by George Harrison, which was a big thing he was doing on the Help record and it's, has found its way here. But it, it stand, like what goes on, it kind of stands out as among the less innovative stuff. If I Need Someone is the second Harrison song, and therefore this is the second album in a row that George Harrison got two songs on. And another sign that he was beginning to compete with the two other songwriters, at least a little tiny bit. It is. Uh, it was actually released by the Hollies. A cover of it was released by the Hollies <laughs> single, but it's it's basically the Beatles sort of imitating the Birds a little bit, and that's kind of weird because, of course, the Beatles were inspired by George Harrison in particular, and the Beatles, the Birds rather, were inspired by George Harrison and the Beatles in terms of uh, their sound. So things had really come full circle. It is in a mode, but not a. A particularly strange one and actually i forgot to mention norwegian wood was also in a mode is also in a mode rather than the traditional diatonic style of western music and so again another indication the beatles were getting a little weirder modes of course have become quite common since their reintroduction into jazz with a kind of blue in 1959 but rock music was not really a thing yet no one's 100 sure what the song was about which was becoming harrison's shtick a little bit the last track is uh Arguably the most mean-spirited Beatles song that had been made up to this point might be one of the most ever. It is a John Lennon and threatening the life of his wife, maybe. It's, it's clearly a John Lennon song, not just because he's saying it, but also it's very hard to imagine Paul McCartney writing something like this. It's, it's the usual sort of, musically, it's the usual uh, sort of genre mashing that the Beatles were doing. There's a verse chorus hybrid thing going on there's blues stuff there's pop stuff but on the whole it's it's noticeably like mean-spirited and 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 it's not dated well lyrically to put it mildly 
it's super, super bitter and angry and, and very unusual for them. It's an interesting way to end the album. And I don't know, the sequencing there is a little strange. But arguably, this album shows them at their very best. They were the most popular band in the world at this point. Arguably, they were the most innovative as well. It's their most musically consistent and impressive record to date. I think it's safe to say. It's also the last time they would make sort of a conventional record like this in many ways. And so I just want to go over, uh, because this is something I'm going to talk about later, I want to go over where their contemporaries were in December 1965. The Beach Boys were putting out the odd song that broke with traditions. However, mostly they were still writing about Cars, Cars, and Girls. And notably, Pet Sounds, which is the big album that everyone who is on the Beach Boys or more important, the Beatles train that used to exist quite heavily in the 90s. And I don't think has survived that well, but used to exist. Notably, Pet Sounds was heavily inspired by Rebel Soul. And it was sort of considered as, you know, Brian Wilson sort of thought of it as his like reaction to Rubber Soul. Pet Sounds would, of course, come out about six months later. The Birds had become one of the most basically had become the folk rock band in the world, but were still very much that. Their second album came out days after Rubber Soul did, and if you've ever heard their second record, I think it's called Turn, Turn, Turn. It is essentially their first album, too. It's much like the Beatles' second album, the Birds' second album is just a retread of the first one. The Kings had uh, tossed out a few albums in the last year, and they, of course, had their famous singles that helped uh, you know initiate harder rock music but like like many british early british bands their albums at this point were very inconsistent and it would be a little while yet before the the kings had actually produced albums that people still talk about today um certainly the really ambitious stuff that ray davies would do would come much later the rolling stones were in a similar position to the kinks even though they'd been recording much longer and performing much longer they had yet to put out a consistent album of original material they would do so in May of 1966, I think May or April, with Aftermath, which was their who knows what album. Um, but it took them until after Rubber Soul to do that. The Who had released their debut album the same day as Rubber Soul, which is crazy to think about. I know a lot of people think of The Who in the Beatles' contemporaries, but The Who released their debut album the same day that Rubber Soul came out, which is crazy. Um, notable, one of the most influential bands of the 60s, The Velvet Underground, were still called the primitives and they were still recording demos in their department in their apartments and lastly frank zappa another candidate for the most influential musician rock musician of the 1960s had yet to start recording his debut album and notably many of the other major rock bands of the 1960s didn't exist yet as for the british invasion bands most of them as i said previously had been super influenced by the beatles already so I think the only competition the Beatles had for the best pop rock album of the early 1960s, early, I use the term loosely, is uh, Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited, which was released a few months earlier. I personally have a really hard time comparing the two because they're both extremely strong and they're very, very different. Obviously, Bob Dylan's songwriting is much better. The Beatles' production and arrangements are far more varied and more interesting musically. I mean, certainly Bob Dylan was doing essentially one fairly narrow thing. And the Beatles were doing many, many, many different things. So I, I have trouble comparing the two. But even if Rubber Soul isn't the greatest pop rock album of the first half of the 1960s, again, using that term uh, sort of loosely, it's the second best, probably. And I think that distinction is a matter of taste. 
Um, personally, now I think I probably like Highway 61 a little bit more, but that's also just because of like I've, I've sort of my tastes have changed. But you know, this is sort of the the end of the era because we're going to very very soon after this psychedelic music started, and you know, the music world was forever changed, the popular music world. And so this is sort of that last point before then, even though the sitar is on this record and stuff. And I do think that this this album stands as among the very, very best things, musical things you could find in the in the 1960s uh, up to this point. And it was very just like their contemporaries really couldn't compete with it. And that's why I wanted to spend so much time on it, because it was a rather big deal, though it's sort of been forgotten a little bit because of what their next two albums were <laughs> so that was the rubber stole spiel i don't think it quite settled on my brain how heavy or influential that album was if that makes sense yeah like you just there's so many good beatles songs and when you come to the beatles you know like what 40 years yep. after they release you don't necessarily go through you know album one album two album three especially in the you know the 90s or the early aughts it was a little bit more difficult to yeah go through a, a band's catalog not like not as as easy as it can be today and you yeah. don't quite um realize quite how fast they produced their earlier albums yeah and how many just absolute bangers there were really like this uh, was it'd been three years. They debuted yeah. three years earlier, which yeah, kind of blows your mind. And when you when you start to put it in context of like Frank Zappa hadn't even recorded a demo yet, and the Velvet Underground were still doing demos, and there weren't a couple of Velvet Underground yet, and you know, the Who just released and released their debut. It kind of does a really good job of putting it into a perspective of quite where they were on the landscape of um that burgeoning sound in rock and roll which again if you like if you're not really paying attention to it and like honestly who is really paying attention nine days out of ten something 40 years ago it's like it was all the 60s right yeah exactly you know like nirvana is not a oldie anymore right that song came out like five years ago but it's it's really interesting to hear placed in that context of time and yeah, that's that's super wild. You don't really think about how big and how much and how fast. Yeah, I mean that's and that's certainly one of the reasons I wrote the book in the first place was because I felt like I would have these conversations and people would be like, "Well, that can't be right," you know. Yeah, you know, you can't you can't be right about that. It was like, no, no, I swear, like, you know, the 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 one like. You know, to pick on the Rolling Stones for a minute, the Rolling Stone, the the only Rolling Stones album that non fans care about that came out before their like before their brief dalliance with psychedelia and um, you know and and the the three mo- their three most famous records, uh, Beggar's Banquet and uh, Let It Bleed and whatever the third one is, Sticky Fingers. You know, the only one that people listen to anymore is Aftermath, and Aftermath came out after Rubber Soul you know or pick on any of these bands you know they the the beatles were doing with the exception of the beach boys who were actually releasing music before them but you know were these inane surf rock songs basically nobody else was really 
had, had was certainly the British bands in particular was recording and certainly nobody else was doing these wacky things they were doing. And it's the combination of the wacky things plus the success that yeah. is really sort of stunning. You know, and I think unless you live through it, which obviously neither of us did, it's really easy to just not be aware of that because like you said, it's just the sixties. Yeah. I, I would imagine to not make everyone feel old, but like when kids think about like the, the upcoming, like the, the grunge scene of the nineties and like, Growing up through the 90s, you think of all the different musical styles and all the different things that happened in, in the 90s. Yeah. Like, but to someone, to a kid now, not a kid, but to somebody now, it's like, yeah, no, that was the 90s. Yeah. Like Nirvana and Third Wave Ska happened at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the context that really helps to like be like, oh, no, wait, that really, yeah, that was a thing. And if you don't have that context of, what happened and when it happened. And I think, I think just probably speaking, that's really easy to happen throughout history. Like what was going on at the same time as this and this, and you, yeah. you just don't think about it. And then something like, when you hear someone explain it, you're like, yeah, no, that tracks, that makes sense. And it just, it changes your your perspective on everything. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, there's, there's so much, so much gets lost with the passage of time. Um, even now, when we have all this stuff, oh, we document everything more than we ever have. It's still, you know, the context is still really easy to lose the context. You know, it's like, you know, I, I know I mentioned it in a previous episode, but like, it's like the the plane, the famous Buddy Holly plane crash. You know, like people at the time thought that meant the end of rock and roll as a genre, and then, and it's impossible. That seems well, especially in say the seventies, eighties, and nineties, that seemed insane to even think about. Now it's it's easy to think about the end of rock music as a genre because it's essentially in many ways it's already dead um yeah but like for people to think of it in like 59 or whatever year that was like it just seems impossible but you know it did at the time because of course no one can see the future and and but you lose a lot of that you lose a lot of that context with with the passage of time especially if you weren't alive for it you know if you're born you know i was born uh 11 and a half years after the beatles broke up so, you know, I, I, I had to find this context by spending way too much time reading about the Beatles, you know, um, for a long time, you know, it was a, it, they were my favorite band for a very long time. And, and I just absorbed things and, you know, and then I was like, oh, this is crazy. Cause like, you know, there are these, these false dichotomies, which I'm going to get into later between the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles that have been created by the media and the public for reasons that i mean the beach boys beatles one is an american thing i'm pretty sure it's just american critics feeling yeah. jealous the rolling stones beatles thing is completely like made up by the rolling stones manager basically it was a great public opinion coup you know to even have that happen because of course as i pointed out in a previous episode the beatles wrote some of the rolling stones songs so the idea that there was like this competitive thing is like really strange because like no they were literally writing their music for them but those types of things yeah it does it sells records it also like it sort of obscures you know what actually happened you know like there there people are are motivated i'm certainly motivated obviously i i've motivated reasoning as much as anybody but i think people are are motivated to sort of tell certain stories about the past music and other things 
because it suits them and and you can like sort of lose the as close as we can get anyway to the truth of what actually happened and for me anyway that matters a lot because then you especially when i was younger i used to encounter people who sort of thought well they didn't do that much and as 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 you can tell we're you know we're halfway through their career not even halfway through their career yeah and they've done they've done quite a lot. Of, I mean, if they broke up, if they broke up after Rubber Soul, they would still be one of the more notable rock bands in the 1960s. Anyway, that's all for this one. We are going to join the wonderful world of psychedelia next time, so that'll be fun because things are going to get you know druggy, basically. I thought you were going to say weird, but druggy works. Yeah, weird and druggy. Yep, very much. So uh, we will uh, see you then. Thanks for listening.